This is the process.ink, episode number six. Welcome to the process.ink. I'm Tom Benedict. On this podcast, I sit down and talk the creative process with writers, TV showrunners, directors, producers, actors, executives, and other cultivators of truth and beauty. I ask them to share their personal work practices, methods, through projects they've done or are now working on. Okay, we're live. Yeah, it seems like what he's doing, he's got a lot of vines in the fire. He loves doing his music, but he doesn't want to travel as much as you need to travel in order to be successful as a yeah. musician. He just doesn't want to he do it. He didn't enjoy doing that. He likes it for two weeks at a time. Yeah. You know, so he's going on tour in a couple of weeks, and he goes to New York and Providence, and then down to Atlanta, and then yeah. to Nashville, and up to Detroit, and all over the place. That's great. But... It's two weeks, you yeah. know, and then he comes back. Yeah. But he doesn't want to, you know, he has a friend who's, they're on the road 200, yeah. 250 days a year, and he's, yeah. he can't handle it. He doesn't want to do it. Yeah. And this is great. He, he gets to write. They're doing an animated series. He does it with his friends. He does all the music. He does the sound and writes. He's writing, like, stories and comedy and that kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, but great. the episodes in, in that world are, like, Seven minutes or four minutes? Two minutes. Yeah. Some are two, some are yeah. ten, you know? Yeah. So it, it's it's fascinating, though. Yeah, well, that's that's part of the playground. That's so much of show business. There's network, which is still there, but then there's these other realms, which are significant. And, they're just well, this... they're going to be more than significant. I mean, I think they're going to take over yeah. to a large extent because there's no... It, it's all still going to exist, but there's just going to be a bigger and bigger market. You know, yeah, yeah. There's for people, shorter people, material. Yeah, people aren't going. To, people still will want to watch movies and will want television that's very mainstream that everybody's watching. But you know, fewer things will rise up, and yeah. there's just more in these different realms that that you can look. Because now with films, people just don't go to see regular movies. No. If it's not a giant, effects-driven franchise. Yeah. People aren't going to see a small movie. I'm not even going to see a small movie anymore. I'm waiting. I see, I go, oh, that looks great. I can't wait to see it at home. Yeah. Because they're not, it's not necessary to see it in the yeah. theater. Well, the, the home screens are larger yeah. than this is a great viewing experience at home. I mean, the home screen that we have now are better than the screens when I saw the classics as a film student. Oh, yeah. In 16 millimeter. Yeah, it was on film and it was a 16 millimeter in a little room. But it was not a good projection. No. It was not a good print. So I'm seeing whatever I'm watching now much more thoroughly yeah. and in better quality than what I saw before. So but yeah, but the experience people... of being with a group and seeing it that way, and now that's replaced with people twittering with each other or whatever while they're watching, yeah. I guess. And they're all, they're all watching on their laptops yeah. or iPads. I haven't cracked that. Do you do that? Did you start doing that with, what, with, your, with I these days? I started to... Yes, I have watched a lot of stuff on the iPad. So you and watch movies? You watch I've movies? watched some movies on the on the iPad, yeah. And I, I enjoy it. I, you your brain goes to another place where when you surrender to it, it becomes big because you're holding it so close. So yeah. your brain just considers it big because also the resolution is fantastic. Yeah. The iPad has that great, the, the, yeah, it's a great screen. It's, it's one of the a best great screen. There is. And if you have good earphones, it sounds great. 
So you just have to get past. I enjoy all of it more, even reading. I don't like to read books. You read yeah, on the Kindle? I or read on the Kindle or the iPad. Books are an inconvenience to me now. They're too big. The pages flip over. They, I find I read much more. You read more because you have everything right in front of you. Yeah, you I read up. much more because I can. I'm probably reading four different things. Now. What are you reading quickly? What, are, what books? I'm are reading you crazy things. I'm reading. I just read the Don DeLillo book, Zero uh-huh. K, which was great. I've that. been reading this thing called The Big Picture by Sean Carroll, which is confluence of quantum mechanics and philosophy. It's a physicist outlining his philosophy using physics and philosophy it's that sounds great it's great but it's one of those things that makes your head hurt so you, you know so you read a little bit of it and then put it down uh, also reading this thing sapiens which is the history of us the history of man and from both science from the biological standpoint and from the cultural standpoint that's really interesting too that's kind of great and then different novels i don't know well, that's, that's excellent. Some I'll find, I just sit, I'll just finish it all in one gulp. But others, the nonfiction takes a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, no, you got to... Especially ones that I don't understand. When they're talking about quantum mechanics, I kind of think I understand it at that moment. You might understand then, it later. It'll like, it'll like pop in later and you'll I realize what it is. I don't think so. I don't, my brain's not that good. No, I, I just hope it'll kind of like float into me somehow and I'll absorb it. But yeah, you never well, know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, okay, we're going to start at the beginning. Okay, this is the process. I'm Tom Benedek, and I'm in uh, sunny, it's actually gray, June gloom, Santa Monica, on a cool, lovely spring day with Stephen Nathan in his wonderful home. And uh, Stephen Nathan, I've known you a long time. Our kids went to school together. Mm-hmm. And you started out on Broadway, and you were in, or was off Broadway, as, off Broadway. playing Jesus and Godspell. Yep. After going to Carnegie Tech and rocking and rolling as a young actor, theater guy, and most recently you were showrunner, executive producer on Bones for its entire run, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, I missed the last couple of years. I was only peripherally there. And but, but 10 years is a long time. 10 years is a long time for a TV show to be on, and to be on it that entire time is an amazing continuity, and congratulations. And you must know, you know about a lot of things that you did not know about from working on that comedy procedural, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. I actually thought that at 10 years on one show, I could have become a doctor. <laughs> I think that's about how long it takes. No, I did learn a lot. I mean, I'd been doing it for a long time, but I'd never been on a show for 10 years. And I was shocked that I could do a show for 10 years. You were on Joan of Arcadia for one year. No, two years two on years. Joan of Arcadia. Okay. And I had done a lot of shows for three years, but... And I always thought that was my limit, but for What were the reason, three years? What shows you were on for three years? Um, family Law... I did for three years. Love and War was three years. I was on that show and then consulted because I was doing other stuff. Diane English and I worked together for a while when I was doing comedies. But, but 10 years just seemed inconceivable to me. I didn't know how I could stand it. I thought I'd get bored. I'm shocked when I look back on it that I was never bored in 10 years. I enjoyed, I mean, I was angry sometimes and I was upset, <laughs> but I was never bored. I always found something interesting to write about in every episode. I don't know how. I don't even... Well, it's the nature of the procedural. I think. I mean, what percentage of that show was procedural and what percentage is relationship, would you say? It was probably 50-50. The, the relationship was what drew me to it. Hart Hansen created the show. And 
when it got picked up, he called me and said, would you like to do it? And I've been working for a long time at that point and thought, yes, I absolutely would. I said yes. And I hadn't even read it at that point. But I thought, you know, Hart and I are friends. I love Hart. It would be, um, be great to do. And so I just dove in. And he somehow got me approved as a procedural writer with the studio and network, which is a complete mystery <laughs> to me, although I had done a, a legal show before that. So, so you've done Family Law before that. I did Family was, Law for three yeah, yeah, years. Which was heavy-duty drama. That was heavy-duty law. I was very concerned that the law always be true, that we never fucked around with the law. We never made stuff up. And it was always more interesting because you would find some loophole, you'd find some crazy wrinkle in the law that you couldn't believe that would give you a far greater story than if you just kind of made it up. So maybe they felt a law show and it was enough of a procedural because that was the only thing Hart had done also. So the two of us sat down when the show started and we had to kill people and then find out who <laughs> did it. And it was like math problems. But once you kind of get in the groove of that part of the show, uh -huh. that's sort of the nuts and bolts of it. It's the foundation of the show. You could never do that show where it was mostly character without. Uh, we had to stay on balance until after maybe four or five years. So you never did like the musical version like they do. Well, no, 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 we did. We, we did do them. The one that, the last one that almost undid me with the studio, and I think they wanted to string me up, was in the 10th season, the 200th episode of the show, we decided to do a big, crazy episode. During the run, we always thought, oh, it'd be great to do some film noir episode, you know, where they're, because it's cops, he's an FBI guy, and they're investigating murder, so it would be great to do a black and white film noir episode of the show. And the network kept saying, no, 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 we don't want to do it, we don't want to do it. And partly because they said, nobody will watch it if it's in black and white. We've done research and people... People will turn, literally turn off their television. They'll turn it off. They I'll won't do it. And we had a writer broken. on the show who said, I won't watch anything in black and white. What? And we said, well, what are you talking about? What about great old movies like Casablanca? He said, no, won't watch it. It's black and white. I don't, I don't, I don't want to see it. So then it turned out to be a blessing because I realized the one thing that I've never seen... And you've seen film noir episodes yeah. all over the place. Every show does it. Yeah. And so basically, it already had been done. So... I was fighting to do something that I shouldn't do anyway. So I thought, I think I had just seen North by Northwest and I went, wait a minute, nobody's done a Technicolor Hitchcock version yeah. of this. Yeah. So I said, that, let's do that. And then everybody got all excited. Yeah, because it's in color and it's not only in color, it's in crazy color, so that old Technicolor yeah. stuff. So they said, okay, go ahead and do it. So. We wrote, I mean, it was a complete, it was basically a love letter to the fans because there were no guest actors in the episode that had not been recurring characters on the show. So we had all of our regulars and all of the recurring characters oh, that the great. audience knew. So there was no strange new person at all. That's wonderful. And it was just a big Hitchcock episode where David Boreanaz was a jewel thief and... Emily was a policewoman who wanted to be a detective, but there were no women in the detective force. Anyway, so we did this big thing. Little did we realize 
how enormously expensive yeah. this was. You had to build sets and shoot differently. Oh my and... God, we redid all of the permanent sets to look like 50s sets. Uh -huh. So that was amazing. But then I wrote a sequence in a DC-3. Yeah, I was going to say, is there you like know, a, you know, you a needed, sequence? Or, well, you, know. you needed the big final yeah. sequence in the Hitchcock movie, whether they were hanging off of Mount Rushmore or whatever it was. So I thought, okay, what if somebody's being held captive in a plane? It's a DC-3, it takes off, and he goes running after it, jumps on the plane, there's a big fight in a plane. Well, we actually got a DC-3, we did 90% of the stuff practically, and it really, really cost a lot of money. And well, that's good. Yeah. Well, I figured, it, well, what are they going to do? It's a 200th yeah. episode. If you amortize yeah. it over 200 episodes, yeah. it didn't cost very much at all. Yeah. But it was great. And then Sean Callery, who is our composer, he, he was brilliant. He did a full-on Hitchcock score, like To Catch a Thief or Bernard wow. Herrmann. We got him a string section, real instruments to use. It was really a lot of fun. I mean, wow. everybody pulled together and it was it was a great piece. But that still had the whole... You still balanced it? And we you had, had a whole, the whole murder. There was a murder that started. It still centered around bones. What we did was in that episode, that was the discovery of how you would use bones to solve a murder. Oh, so it was sort of a genesis. It was the stuff. genesis That's of great. the show in, in an odd great. way. But you could, we, what we have done, what we did ultimately, like starting in episode four, year four or five, you could get away with doing a character episode where the murder was a secondary part of the episode. And those are always the best. Part had created two great characters and then which really had a life that could easily go on for 12 years. It was not hard to find you could always conflict. find the notes to hit or find the things about their you could always find something would... new they, they had become real enough and distinct enough that their lives became interesting in the way that any two people somehow i guess the way that i thought about it which maybe i'm a little crazy but i thought about it as that when you're doing a series you have two like this there are two characters we pick them up at one part of their life, and then when the series ends, you leave them in another part of their life. They had a life before the series, and they will have a life after the series. Yeah. So everybody's life is interesting at any point yeah. in time if you look at it a certain way. Yeah. And that's so, kind of how we kept it alive. So how would you, like, so I kind of call that, that start of a script or story the angle of entry. If yeah. people have a set of circumstances, what would it be to elements that you'd think about one of those characters when they started? How would you? Well, you know, I mean, it sounds, I guess, relatively obvious or even tried to say, but, you know, she was someone who had no capacity to understand her life emotionally. She was somebody who was basically had a touch of, of Asperger's and had always looked at, at the world in a very logical, rational, and black and white way. Whereas his character was the opposite, was someone who operated on instinct, which she didn't even really believe in, felt that an emotional life was the most important thing for him. She was an atheist. He was a, is a Catholic, believes in God. He understood 
people's behavior in a way that she never could. And we saw the two of them merge in a way. We saw how the two of them complemented each other and how she became more human while he had a respect for eggheads that he never had before. Uh -huh. Well, he has a respect for things he doesn't understand rather than dismissing them. So that is something that never ends because yeah. they don't ever become the other person. But they were able more to see things from the other's point of view. They were, in, they in were able after many years. Sort of anticipate, oh, I know how that one is going to think about this. And yeah. I disagree, but I know how that's going to be. That's right. And, what, and the fuel for that usually became the cases because the cases would always revolve around human beings. They would always revolve around people. She would look at how they fit into the factual element of the case and he would try to find out what made them do this or why this person should be a suspect and this person shouldn't be. Frequently he would be wrong and frequently she would be wrong. And through that, they would be able to understand little bits and pieces of, of each other. And then over time, they became closer and closer, fell in love with each other, started to live together, got married, but their differences did not go away. They, they approached child rearing from completely different points of view. And so we had those cases, which usually were reflections of social situations that we all went through, either uh -huh. in the news or it could have been things that we were, one of the writers was reading about or mm -hmm. believed in. We would confront them with those situations and with those people. You wouldn't start saying, oh, we want to do a show about them about this this week, or you might have something like that, but you would say, this will work well with this case that That's we right. bring in. Or, yeah. or you would, but generally, work, you would you start know, with a case and then that would generate the story that would take place. Yeah, them. so we would do human trafficking with modern day slavery. We, we would do... How, so how would you figure out what makes a grade A story? How would you discern from what you had or would you create a grade A story out of just well, some we headline would, or a situation? Yeah, we would create them. It, it could be out of headlines. It could be... Frequently in our case, it was out... Uh, we would find a, something you could discern from bones, from human remains or we'd get an interesting death. We would have to decompose the body. They would have to be confronted with basically an already decomposed body or a body that was like at least 80% decomposed. So how do you find out who the people are, who the victims are, what their connections are, and how do you solve the case using logic from his point of view, but from her point of view, and from for the show's point of view, mostly through bones. And you would never see the victim in real life. You would never fall. No, you, rarely. You would never flash back. Very rarely. No, 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 no. And, no. and so it always. And that was a big problem in the beginning because the network said, How, "Why do we care about this person?" And our feeling was, "Because they they got killed. That's a terrible thing. I feel terrible for this person and their family. It's already done, you know." But we, I don't know. We just find stories that resonated with us and if we found some kind of connection. The other thing that we did, well, two things that we did. Again, we wanted these to be as factually accurate, scientifically accurate as possible. And I think we were one of the most scientifically accurate shows on television. We were about 75% accurate, which is about all you can do without having a case 
take two years to, to finish. But that was really important to us. And again, you'd find out things you would never believe were possible. We had technical consultants who helped yeah. us out, but be confronted with how the characters react to these situations that they were in. We did a 9-11 episode about it. It was 10, 11 years after 9-11 probably longer because we needed some distance to, yeah. to do it and it, it was great for us we found a way to do it that Ruf Booth's character was a ranger and was a sniper in the military so he had killed a lot of people and he had been in Afghanistan and he had so this was a very ripe situation for him and Brennan, Emily's character, had been at ground zero trying to identify remains. To her, it was just a clinical exercise. To him, everything was personal. So what we did in that episode was we didn't know how to approach it. We talked about it for years and then found a way... So you would have subjects and you just put it back on the table and say, let's figure this out. Let's just figure it out. Month, and sometimes it would take a few years, yeah. you know, before... We found a way to do it where that felt right and that gave us something to write rather than just this horrible person did this horrible yeah. thing. We also tried to make all of the assailants or murderers not just evil. We didn't want anyone to just be a heinous bad guy. We had to do it. We had serial killers all the time and they're pretty much horrible. Every season you do three serial killers, something like that? No, or? we would do one serial killer one serial a, a, a season and they would usually go for a few episodes. Oh, so that would be like you know, a subplot that would string through? Yeah, that would string through the season. How I many remember? other subplots did you have that were crime stories? that would stream through how we had a few times well i was there for 10 years so we did it probably 10 times but there would be other stories also that would recur to personal stories with different characters would recur and in a given episode as showrunner writer how would you look at in terms of how many subplots you had would you think that you this script does not have enough little story we always off, had too how? much I, we were always thinning them out because you wanted to give them a proper amount of time to really go into whatever issue you wanted to go into so and if you had too many plots you were just servicing plot 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 and it, it wasn't personal couldn't do those scenes that might take five minutes that scene would then have to be like yeah. 30 seconds and little character stories i mean you would just we had little character stories arcs that ran through the entire series for all the characters. We didn't know where they were going at the time, but those stories would present themselves as we went along. At different times, given different, different times, kinds of yeah. cases and different circumstances. And deciding what a great A story for an episode is, like what would be sort of like the... I don't know, it just was instinct. It just kind of was something... How many writers did you have? We had between... I guess nine and 12. Did you go in there and sit I didn't with run them, the room. Or? There was somebody up there running the room. What, what would happen is story areas would be pitched to us and we would say, yes, that sounds good. This sounds good. This sounds good. This sounds good. Then they would pick the one they wanted to develop and then we would go up there and listen to the story that they had beaten out. One writer would, or the, the room? The room the, would always the room. be there. And, you know, supporting whatever writer was there. It but was the writer himself would pitch the episode. Yes. And then I would listen to it or Hart would listen to it. And we go, okay, that's great. But in this section, that doesn't 
quite make sense? Or how about if you do this? Or I know who did it. I knew who did it right away. What if we change this around? Or do, And then we would come in and try to finish it off or have them go back with a set of notes to re-break certain parts of the story. And then they would go off and write the outline. We'd look at the outline, approve the outline, and then they'd write a draft. The writers we had were just terrific. And what was the most remarkable to me was how they just kept coming up with completely new and different stories and completely new and different ways of killing people, which was really interesting, you know, and finding sets of remains. And it became a signature of the show that the first thing that you saw on the show was just wildly horrendous and awful and also usually funny. Garbage men finding a set of remains in a garbage that they're they're picking up or so the a little teaser, kid finding a human head in a playground and so the teaser was always this is the story we're going to do on the show these are the set of remains that will kick us off okay frequently the the first act would have that we'd start with that but also especially the the more we got into it it could also start as a personal story between booth and brennan because that was just as interesting to the audience and to us as well and in terms of your, your audience feedback, you, you get, you know, I, I mean, there must have been incredible Oh, we had tremendous constantly in contact with the Bones with the had a, a huge, rabid fan base, still does. And we would hear from them all the time. How would you parse through that? Would you actually? Oh, no, no, no. We would have, it never impacted what we did. I think that's a terrible way to do a show. I, I mean, a lot of people do it, and you, it I hear works about for that them. a lot. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe because I don't think what I hate is the research. I hate research. I think it's bullshit. I think the research bears out that the research is bullshit. <laughs> they analyze these shows. They go through massive testing. Yet ninety percent of the shows fail. Now, using that research, that you're using research to get only 10% success means research is pretty much bullshit as far as I'm concerned uh, and, with those numbers. But, but anyway, and the same people holds want true. Art. They want creative television. They want to see something that's amazing and interesting. So Yes, and I think, but what happened with the Twitter followers, primarily that's where the loudest voices were. Yeah. And Twitter became a great touchstone for the show. Now, we would listen to everybody, but we wouldn't make changes based on their fury or their love of something. Because frequently what would happen is we would do something on the show and the, and, and the Twitter response would be, I will never watch this show again. I hate what you did to that character. That was horrible. It was awful. You should be ashamed of yourself. Fuck you. I, and they would just go crazy. And we would go, this is great. <laughs> because invariably that person would come back every week and say, I knew I was right. This sucks, you people. How could you do this to this character? I will never watch again. They'd watch the next week because all you're doing is stirring them up. If they're angry and if they're upset, that means they're involved. Yeah. Now, we saw no decline in our viewership. So oftentimes the, the, we would get more viewers. Yeah. Because the more controversial something is, or the more upset the audience was, the more they talked about it, the more people wanted to see what they were talking about. But now if you're saying, oh, we can't do that because these people hated it, then you're playing catch up and they're running the show. Yeah. Then it becomes a video game where 
the audience is choosing the next plot twist. And there are shows that are more mindful of this, that are styled to kind of... Yeah, and they're very active. successful. So really what I'm saying is probably complete bullshit. But I, It depends on what the kind of show and the style of the creator yeah. is, how you use that input. Some people can just treat it like... I loved it. I also did like interacting at times with people who hated certain things. <laughs> And then there were people who loved them. And then you would see people would have blogs about the show and they would write these long pieces about each episode every week. And they would frequently be beautifully written. I mean, really intelligent pieces, sometimes far better than critics. And their loyalty was admirable. And That's great. We had great respect for them, but we couldn't make creative decisions based on their likes or dislikes. Even if it was a mistake, maybe we should have at some point, but you have to kind of just take charge of the show. Okay, so let's talk about your work on Bonanza. Oh, that was good. <laughs> My work on Bonanza. You came out here from New York Theater? I came you... out from New York. I started in New York. Bonanza, the Paul Lynn show, Young Dr. Kildare, yeah, yeah. Adam's Rib. Adam's so Rib, you just, you, Laverne and Shirley. Yeah. Yeah, I was an actor. I started out as an actor. I did Godspell in New York. And you uh, did a reading of my novel, Peloponnesia. I know, but I which think didn't make my, it talent, that work my talent had dribbled out by No, then. no, you were fantastic. <laughs> I predict you will go back to acting in the next 24 months. I enjoyed it. I never really enjoyed acting in film film or television. That wasn't my place. I'm more of a ham. I enjoyed it on stage. I loved theater. I loved acting on stage. And then I came out here because really I loved film and television. So I came out here and I worked. I always worked, but I never enjoyed the process, really. It was a lot of fun to do Bonanza because I had grown up my God. As a kid watching well, you Bonanza were only, and Lauren you were, Green. You were two years old when you did Bonanza, right? I was, yeah, I was 20, must have been 22 or 23. And that was your first Hollywood job? My first actual paid thing was, I think, Young Dr. Kildare, which was one of the first syndicated shows that was made directly for syndication with Gary Merrill and... So that was not the Dr. Kildare, this was a different... This was, this a, was this a different was a, one. A second is a reboot, a reboot of the original Dr. That's Kildare. Right. And I remember doing the episode with William Devane and that was at the old MGM studios. Adam's Rib was there. My first job out here, actually, I did the film version of 1776. I came out wow. from New York to do that while I was still doing Godspell. And then after that, I went back. But that was actually a lot of fun because they... That was a big musical at Warner Brothers, It was a big Brothers, musical. Right? It was the last film shot at Columbia Studios, which is now Columbia. Sunset Gower. Okay. And, and Harry was Cohen was still... Jack... Head. No, Harry Cohen was dead. Okay, it was, it was a Warner film. It was Jack Warner was the... It was really unbelievable because I came out here at the end of Hollywood, at the end of kind of yeah. old Hollywood. So Jack Warner was at that point an independent producer because he had sold Warner Brothers. So he had done My Fair Lady, which was the film he did before yeah. 1776. I love that movie. That was I, mean, great, I love My Fair Lady, but I, I do love that It was a huge success. Film. But I had to go and meet Jack Warner in his penthouse at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel and sing for him while he was having lunch. Now, 
Wow. That was great. <laughs> and he could never remember my name. He always called me Sidney or Stanley or... But there was a piano player in the penthouse who played for me while I sang for him while he was having lunch. And I was there. I mean, and that's like... was. Do you remember what you sang? You sang something from the I, from I sang, the book, I think I musical? sang Mama Luke Sharp, which was the thing I was... I had to sing in the film. I still have the contract, which was typed on a typewriter and signed by Jack Warner. There was no like business affairs guy who signed yeah. it. Warner signed. Warner signed the contract. And it was a. And so we spent three months out here doing that film, and ninety percent of it was done on one stage at Columbia Pictures. And Columbia then was, this was the last movie done there, and they were still doing like Bewitched was being yeah. done there and everything. But Warner, who was a big rat during, during the whole McCarthy area yeah. and blacklist in Hollywood, well, he led the charge. I mean, he blacklisted tons of people and everything. And one of the actors in the film was Howard De Silva, who had been Pretty blacklisted. blacklisted yeah. And he was in the movie. This was the first Hollywood movie he'd done. I think Warner was really old and probably didn't even remember who the hell he was. <laughs> but, man, De Silva was still off. I don't think he ever said a load. And Jack Warner, Warner was on the set. Who was the director? Do you remember? Peter Hunt. Peter Hunt. Peter Hunt, who had directed the the piece on Broadway. I had nothing to do with it in New York. Peter Hunt directed it, and it was just all old Hollywood. Ray Heindorf was the musical director who had done like a billion old Hollywood musicals. And when you pre-recorded your stuff, you recorded it with a full orchestra. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it was it? crazy. I remember coming out here. I drove across country, came out here, and the first day I went to Columbia, and I found the production office, and I said, I'm here, and they went, well, so what? Like, you, you don't work for another, like, 10 days or something. And I said, well, I just wanted to, can I, can I see the set? Can I look at the, the, the soundstage? And he went, why? And I went, yeah. <laughs> I've never been here. I've never been here before. Industry town. If you did that on Broadway, they'd, there'd be somebody emotion. Yeah. Laden come here, person. Can, come and look at the stage. You know, <laughs> no, but here yeah, it was like, no, it's why, hard why do you want to do that? But I, they let me on, and I looked, and I remember walking through the back line. I was just amazing. Yeah. But I gotta say, I still have that feeling. I still can't take for granted what I do. I can't believe what they've let me do. I still actually love. The business, it still is an amazing thing to me. The reach of it, the impact that it can have. And I think I always knew it then. I say, when you do something and everything I've done, I don't know, I always feel a certain responsibility. Is that something, when you were a little kid, you wanted to be an actor? Or you wanted to it's, just, I you, you looked at shows, you looked at shows and you just knew, I, I, I want to be, be a part that. of that yeah. somehow. That's what I felt. That's, I felt like, I wanted to be movies. I just bonded into it and I wanted to do yeah, that. Yeah, there was TV, nothing... I was, I was passionate I, about TV as a kid as well. Nothing else I wanted to do. My father, we had the first TV on the block, because I'm an old man, but we had the first TV on the block because my father had a furniture and appliance store. So he got one and all the kids would come over to my house wow. at, in the afternoon, like 4.30. I remember that at 4.30, that's when TV Dick, came on. Dick Clark? No, American this was before Dick Clark. This was Howdy Doody. Howdy Doody, yeah. And there'd be a test pattern yeah. and then 
Howdy Doody would come out. And it was just a miracle to me. It must be like the internet started, you know, where you would see these horrible video images. And now, you know, you just like sending a script to somebody. It was just letters and numbers on the screen. Oh, just, yeah. You know, just coding it that way and getting it done on the Internet. It's crazy. Yeah. So let's get back to that great idea of like responsibility and excitement about being in the medium and being a practitioner. What's your heart statement about that? I have felt so lucky and so fortunate to be able to do what I love and eat because of it. I guess I don't take that lightly. <laughs> I feel that it comes with a certain responsibility not to fuck off when you are given an opportunity to produce something. And, and by how, producing something, yeah. I mean writing something. So how hard do you work? Well, like, I used when you were to work, on the show, like, how would you do it? Well, running a show to me was always a very full time. When I was doing comedy, it was seven days a week if I was running something because like when you were doing sitcoms, you spent a long time just, long just time, doing sitcoms like, before you were in one hour. Oh yeah. I did it for almost 25 years, I think. And that was brutal hours because the rewrites would go on sometimes till one, two in the morning. And when I was running the show, I would have to take scripts on the weekends and do my rewrites on scripts on the weekend. So the hours were, it was sometimes you'd get there at nine in the morning and you'd leave two, three in the morning. Those hours were brutal. I think they're a little better now. I don't think people are quite as insane as they were then, but it was pretty all-encompassing. And then for dramas, I would still work seven days a week a lot because, again, I would have to rewrite scripts on weekends. If I was running the show, somebody's draft would come in, would give notes and everything, but the final pass always went through either my hands or Hart's hands or when I was running Family Law, it was David Shore and I, we would do the final pass on the scripts. How involved would that final pass be? Like, what when this, you would have to sort of refine the voices and yeah, punch we'd things refine up the and voices. reconfigure. How much of a rewrite would it be? I guess it was a case by case basis, but it was case by case. Sometimes it would be a a big giant rewrite, almost a page one. Sometimes it could be a very easy polish just to make sure the voices were right. Sometimes it could be um, reconfiguring a story because ultimately it just didn't work. So, and oftentimes those big rewrites would have to be done over a couple of days. And and uh, you would have already given it back to the writer a couple of times yes, before that. And yeah. it's like, okay, it's down to this. So, and it's also like this idea of doing a show every week where you're faithful days what it's supposed to be means yeah. that you have to really fine-tune the voices of everything and everybody yes. so that it is what it so it fits in with the rest of it and yes that's, and that's why Hart left the show before I did and but the tone and the voices were set and then when I left and uh, John and Michael took over they, John, what, John, and John Collier and Michael Peterson, who had been on the show for some years, they took it over. They could kind of pick up where we left off, and then it becomes their voices. Then it has to logically morph into their voices, and it becomes a little different every time, which is good, which yeah. is what it has to be. But I guess I always felt I had to be satisfied with it before it went out. I had to know that it felt right to me, that characters were true, and that the story meant something. Even if I was crazy, I always felt that every episode had to have some meaning. I felt I had to explore some issue 
no matter what it was, whether it's privacy, whether it's generosity, and whether it's at what point would that betrayal. that would be like from the very beginning when you heard the pitch from the writers? Like what's this oftentimes really about, it would be or? oftentimes it would be from the beginning, but sometimes it would actually be during the final rewrite where there'd be just something that felt wrong about the script where it didn't have that final thing that made it worthwhile watching. Yes, it had the plot. Yes, maybe it had a few jokes or this or that. But what was the underlying reason that we're watching this? And really, honestly, it could be my craziness. And that well, I think maybe that only... Idea, but it's, 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 going back to your theater days, I mean, it's like, okay, oh, what's the spine of this piece? Or yeah. what's the kernel? Or, you know, there's any number of, I forget what Stella Adler would have called it. But there's that idea of like, okay, this is really about this. And everything that happens in it somehow relates to There's that. There's got to be a, an element of truth to it. That, I feel, is my obligation. There has to be an element of truth. And I think that holds true for any genre. It holds true for literature. I mean, there was even the attempt at that with something as ridiculous as Laverne and Shirley. There has to be a kernel of truth that Or Gary Marshall and Babalu and Lowell. I mean, they were thematic writers. They yes. are thematic creators for the long yeah. term. So. Well, there was always this thing that was Gary Marshall and Lowell. They would always say at the end of the episode, what's the ticker? What's the ticker? That's what they called it. Yeah, the ticker. What's that element of humanity, that little piece of humanity that was the reason we watched the show? You wanted to get the ticker in there. You had to get the ticker in there. <laughs> That's you know? great. Otherwise, you were just laying pipe. And he said, you can't lay pipe without the ticker. Okay. All um, right. That's... And it's true. Now, I mean, a lot of people can listen to this and go, it's fucking bones, for Christ's sake. It's, it's just a procedural. But you know what? There, I think... That's an excuse for everything else. Procedural is an excuse to show a window into mankind. Into mankind. I believe question, you can Why would that. someone do this? I, How I could this happen? I actually remember talking to... I don't know if you remember Steve Gordon. Steve Gordon wrote Arthur. And, yeah, yeah. Well, Jesse, my wife, was doing a series with Steve and I wrote an episode for it, and Steve was just fantastic. He was a great writer. He'd written on Mary Tyler Moore and all this. He was a great writer, and he cared so much about the characters, and he was obsessive about rewriting everything, and you never begrudged him that because he was such a great writer, but he told a story once about giving a script to a writing team who had only done features. And they looked at television as being shitty. They just thought television was crap and they could dash this thing off and get the money that they needed because they needed a little money. And as Steve said, what they did was dash off a shitty piece of material because they felt it was shitty. And it came true. That television that they wrote was in fact shitty because that's how they viewed it. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. That's not to say that if you start out trying to find great truth in something, it can't turn out to be terrible. We've all seen horrible movies that tried to be great or horrible television shows where somebody's saying exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. But it's Even just when things are, you know, when, when characters reach a point in something, when there's some kind of mirror moment or something happens, which is at that, which is the, what he would call a ticker, yeah. I think that that makes something that's not so good, okay sometimes or a lot of the time. Yeah. It's like, okay, there was a point here and you reached it. So sometimes dramatically it all fits together perfectly and sometimes not, but I think that's why people watch. Yeah, and, and I think for me that happened because there was so much comedy in, in Bones, for instance. I've never understood a drama that's just serious all the time. 
I don't think it reflects life in any way, shape, or form. No. I'm sure killers have a good laugh every now yeah. and then, and I'm sure victims laugh at the yeah. most inopportune times, yeah. and people. Have, so I've I've never understood any dramatic piece devoid of humor. And the best comedy comes with moments of seriousness or pathos. And you understand why they're as ridiculous as they are, or why the situation is so profoundly absurd. And I think those are the things that endure. I think without that, they pass quickly and become even more disposable than our disposable culture yeah, normally yeah, is. It's true. It's true. I mean, I think anything relentless is, you know, finding ways to elegantly modulate between different tones. I think that's yeah. one of the things in Hollywood figured out how to do and that that has had tremendous influence in all film media everywhere. And it's just something that, that, that's done well. And now you're writing a play. Or you wrote yeah, a play. I and wrote gonna, a and you're play. Gonna, and you're unplugged from television for the time being. Yeah, I'm taking a little step back just to give myself a breath because I have been doing it basically nonstop for, well, writing. I mean, if, if it's everything, for 45 years I've been in this business in some form or another as a, either a, an actor or a writer, but writing primarily for years. So I decided to try to write something just for myself or try to write something that I didn't know how to write. So I wrote a play this year and it was kind of a great experience because I had no idea how to do it. <laughs> it's no, wonderful. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I mean, you've seen many plays, you've acted in plays, yeah, I've, so you, you know the medium, but how did it feel different as soon as you were writing it? I think it was different because it's just talking. I didn't have to worry about locations. I didn't have to worry about how long a scene was. I just had to deal with one thing and so see it was the open. The once you started writing, it was like the open road or something? You know, you just... Well, yeah, once I started writing, first there's the realization that what I'm writing is probably terrible. Yeah. And then, but you just kind of kept working it. I think you have an inner sense of how long a scene should go or what's necessary. And then you look at it again and rewrite it again. And now the process that I'm looking forward to, I'm, I'm going to be going to New York Stage and Film, which is in Poughkeepsie. It's a summer program where they're going to read my play. They're not doing a production of it, but it's, it's a reading. They do 10 readings a season, but the plays are cast out of New York. The actors, New York actors, go up to Poughkeepsie and stay there for a week, and we rehearse, and I rewrite the play, you know, awesome. just so I can see what the play is and how it sounds and what it needs. And That's exciting. That sounds so fantastic. I've, and I've never had that experience That's before. What a wonderful thing to do, and great that you wrote the play and that you got a place like that. It's, it's really it's remarkable. Yeah, and congratulations. What's it called? The play? Yeah. The Ways of Necessity. Well, it's, uh, it's sort of a family piece. It's about a guy who finds out that he's going to die in a few weeks and maybe six weeks and coming to terms with that with his family. But more than that, having to rectify something horrendous that he did in his life that his family doesn't know about. And then the whole family is drawn into that. Sounds so, great. So that sounds uh, fascinating yeah. and moving and so we're, funny. As well. I, I hope. <laughs> How much of, what's the balance of comedy and... Uh, I'm not sure because some things I might think are funny, they might not think are funny and vice versa. <laughs> so 
I don't know. It's probably a good, I think about a good 25%, hopefully, is going to be funny. And I think I'll probably just keep trying to, I think I, might, I have a couple more things that I might try to write, uh, plays, and then I might try, you wrote a book. That, to me, is, is unbelievable. Do I, I'm it. Try to do do that. it. You'll do I don't that next. I do that. Or, or you'll circle around to it after you write this cycle of plays that you're working just on. Just, I kind of feel like... Well, you're a lifer as a writer. You, you pushed off from Bones ended, and you left Bones 10 years, and then you just started writing, well, I took regenerated... A and started writing again. You took six months off or so? I was forced to take a little time off because of my body. And then after that, I did go back and I did a pilot this year that was that I had started prior. I did that with John Collier, who was fabulous. And But now I'm just trying to see what else there is to do. I just want to do stuff I don't know how to do. That's great. In my podcast. You did my I podcast. Have, I didn't know how to do that. Did you ever do a podcast before? No, I've never done Okay, well, you did a great, another major achievement <laughs> I, for Stephen I, Nathan. I don't know. Right? It could completely <laughs> ruin your career now. <laughs> no, this is going to be the bones of podcasts. A 10-year run. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. It was fun and, and informative, and there was a tick here. Was that it? What's it called? A tick? Ticker. Ticker. Okay. Ticker. You need the ticker. You need the ticker. Okay, we had a ticker. All right. Thank you. And that's it for now. If you would like a PDF transcript of today's show or want to check out our schedule, you can get it all and more at theprocess.ink. And of course, we're on iTunes and all those other good places. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Benedict.